everybody. This is Joseph P. Farrell with news and views from the Nefarium. First one of 2021. Uh, this is coming to you Thursday, January 7th, 2021. And I wish I could wish everybody Happy New Year. I do wish all of you a very happy new year. But 2021 is certainly off to a rocky start. Um, and I, I really don't have any prepared remarks because, first of all, it's very difficult for me to express what I'm thinking and feeling right now in the wake of the absolute disaster of the American federal elections of last year and what we saw yesterday, the spectacle that we saw yesterday of the mob storming the Capitol. Now, you may think that when I refer to the mob storming the Capitol, that I'm referring to those people that pushed their way into the Capitol building and basically shut down a session of Congress. I'm not referring to them because primarily what it appears to my eye to have been was a few agents provocateurs infiltrating a uh, rally and driving it into that sort of activity. The mob that I'm referring to is the mob called Congress. And what we saw in terms of police behavior breaking up protesters who, as far as I could tell, now you may disagree with me, that's fine. You have your opinion, this is mine. As far as I could tell, were protesting rather peacefully. The mob activity, as far as I can tell, was on the part of the police. And I have to tell you, in all honesty, that as a boy, when I lived through the assassination of President Kennedy, um, I became very disgruntled, disenchanted, skeptical of the American narrative about itself. That persisted all the way through college and graduate school. I did participate politically after I was of age to vote up until 1988 when G.H.W. Bush ran. At that point, I thought it was rather pointless to do so because there did not appear to me to be much philosophical difference in reality between the two parties that we were offered to choose from. And for several decades, as you know, if you've been following me a number of years, for several decades, I basically was non-political. That didn't mean that I didn't have political opinions, but rather it meant that I did not vote because I didn't see much of a choice being offered. Well, I came out of retirement 
in 2016 to cast a reluctant vote for Donald Trump because I viewed and still view Hillary Clinton as one of the symptoms of the problem of Swampington, D.C. We have now witnessed, in my opinion, an election that is not only fraudulent but stolen. We have a man who is essentially a grifter, and as far as I'm concerned, an agent of influence for communist China. We have Republicans and Democrats who are not even willing to look at nor address the concerns of the millions of voters that they just disenfranchised. So my view of the situation is I went to bed last night living in the shards of what was left of this country and woke up today with an absolute um, mess. Now, they're going to try and portray this as a return to normal. And in a certain sense, it is. But at best, at best, if this is a return to the business as usual, the grift as usual uh, approach of the swamp, and that's the best case scenario. The worst case scenario is we've just had a coup d'etat, and what we now have in charge of this country is a shill for communist China. That's the worst case scenario. And it got me to think uh, about my future, which I think, you know, given the opinions that I hold, I'm probably one of those with a big target for the re-education camps painted on me. Because make no mistake, that's what this current group is. But I, I wanted to share some readings with you as to why this has happened. America likes to view itself as the quote-unquote exceptional nation, as if we are exempt by dint of our constitution and political superiority and administrative genius to the ways of history that befall all corrupt governments, particularly those that are founded in ideologies that are, quite frankly, against the laws of, of the cosmos or the laws of God or whatever you prefer to say. The idea that we are an exception to that rule has inculcated in this country and in this culture, if you want to call it that, a, a kind of hubris that is so divorced from reality that I think there will be geopolitical consequences to this election right now that we can scarcely imagine. Because what we've revealed ourselves to be to the world is a banana republic operating under color of law. I want to read why we're in this mess from a book by, some of you may be familiar with his name, Murray Rothbard. Uh, the book is called Conceived in Liberty. It's an excellent little study. Rothbard was, as many of you know, a 
libertarian economist. Now, I'm not a libertarian. I have many philosophical disagreements with that political and economic philosophy. Some aspects of it strike me as being very, very similar in its historical analysis of the human condition to the Bavarian Illuminati, believe it or not. But I do tend to think that they have given the most thought, the most objective thought, to this current situation. Uh, I'm reading from the last chapter in this book, and I want you to listen carefully to what he says. This was written years ago. What he says in this chapter, and apply it to the current situation. Because what he's telling you is that the problem that we're facing is in part due to the American Constitution itself. And then I'm going to read from another book. Listen carefully. It was a bloodless coup d'etat against an unresisting Confederation Congress. The original structure of the new Constitution was now complete. The Federalists, by use of propaganda, chicanery, fraud, malapportionment of delegates, blackmail threats of secession, and even coercive laws, had managed to sustain enough delegates to defy the wishes of the majority of the American people and create a new Constitution. Let me read that again. It was a bloodless coup d'etat against an unresisting Confederation Congress. The original structure of the new Constitution was now complete. The Federalists, by use of propaganda, chicanery, fraud, malapportionment of delegates, blackmail threats of secession, and even coercive laws, had managed to sustain enough delegates to defy the wishes of the majority of the American people and create a new constitution. The drive was managed by a core of brilliant members and representatives of the financial and landed oligarchy. These wealthy merchants and landowners were joined by the urban artisans of the large cities in their drive to create a strong overriding central government, a supreme government with its own absolute power to tax, regulate commerce, and raise armies. These powers were sought eagerly as a method of handing out special privileges to commercial groups, navigation acts to subsidize shipping, tariffs to protect inefficient artisans stampeded by national depression from foreign manufactured goods, and a strong army and navy to pursue an aggressive foreign policy designed to force the opening of the West Indies ports, the Mississippi River, and the Northwest. And to pay for all of these bounties, a central taxing power would be harnessed that would also assume and pay the public debt held by wealthy speculators. But government, by its nature, cannot supply bounties and privileges without taking them from others. And these others were to be largely the hapless bulk of the nation's citizens, the inland subsistence farmers. 
in western Massachusetts, taxes to pay a heavy public debt owned by wealthy men in the East had produced Shays' Rebellion. Now, a new super-government carrying out a, on a national scale the mercantilist principle of taxation, regulation, and special privilege for the benefit of favored groups, the few, at the bulk, at, pardon me, at the expense of the bulk of producers and consumers in the country, the many. And while to acquire sufficient support, they had to purchase allies among the mass of the people, exempla gratia, urban artists, the major concentration of benefits and privileges would undoubtedly accrue to America's aristocracy. As part of the agreed-to division of the coming spoils, the northern nationalists, though permanently abhorring slavery in a region where it was not viable and was being abolished, rather swiftly moved to protect and even encourage slavery in other regions in order to obtain support of the Southern nationalists and thus the Constitution. Remember the words of Lincoln. My purpose is not to abolish slavery in the slave states. If I can save the Union by not abolishing slavery, I'll do it. And if I can save the Union by abolishing it, I'll do that too. To these nationalist leaders, abandoning the slave to his fate was a small price to pay for a strong central government to further markets for northern merchants and shippers. I'm skipping several paragraphs here. If then the Constitution was a counter-revolution, what kind of reactionary movement was it? Contrary to the famous Beard thesis, it was not at all a struggle between a sound money creditor class against small farmer debtor classes in favor of inflation and paper money. These were categories that Beard impermissibly smuggled from his experience of the monetary struggles of the late 19th century. It is impermissible to speak of debtor and creditor classes, for these are categories that shift from month to month and even day to day. Consequently, while it is true that paper money is likely to be favored by debtors, the aggressive debtors were far more likely to be wealthy merchants and great planters than rural farmers far removed from the seats of financial and political power. Wealthy mercantilists have higher credit ratings, can do more with borrowed money, and have a much stronger political connection that allow them to secure favorable legislation. In truth, most groups, especially most of the wealthy, favored paper money. The difference came largely in the ways in which that money could be emitted and in whether legal tender laws could accompany them. The oppressive form of debt against which, listen carefully, the oppressive form of debt against which, for example, the Shayites rebelled, rebelled was not private debt but public debt. Edom asked against the fastening of a revolutionary war debt owned by the wealthier classes upon the masses and small farmers who would be taxed to pay for it. The constitutional counter-revolution, then, was not a struggle of sound money men against inflationists or creditors against debtors. Jackson Turner Maine's brilliant demonstration that it was a conflict of commercial versus non-commercial factions can be subsumed under a broader truth. It was, as Patrick Henry grasped, a struggle of power and privilege, and to a lesser extent of aristocracy, 
against democracy. Those familiar categories can also be subsumed in the liberty versus power dichotomy. For while aristocracy was the most determined to acquire special privileges, they could not have won without the lures of apparent privileges offered to the urban artisans. And now, skipping all the way to the end. The Federalists, on the other hand, in their faith in quasi-monarchical power, especially with themselves in the driver's seat, are strongly reminiscent of the Tories, another indication of the continuity in the ideological struggle and of the Federalist movement as a reaction against the spirit of the American Revolution. Forrest MacDonald is the latest historian to treat the adoption of the Constitution as a counter-revolution counter in restoring Toryism. However, in contrast to the early historians of a similar view, MacDonald extravagant, extravagantly eulogizes this process. Apparently for MacDonald, the American Revolution was the first step down the inevitable road to Bolshevism, a fate from which America was saved only by the miracle of all ages to come of the Federalists, giants who spoke in the name of the nation. Happily for MacDonald, the giants triumphed instead of those who in 1787 and 1788 spoke in the name of the people and of popular rights. Overall, it should be evident that the Constitution was a counter-revolutionary action to the libertarianism and decentralization embodied in the American Revolution. The anti-federalists, supporting states' rights and critical of a strong national government, were decisively beaten by the federalists, who wanted such a policy under the guise of democracy. Notice what he said, under the guise of democracy, in order to enhance their own interests and institute a British-style mercantilism over the country. Most historians have taken the side of the Federalists because they support a strong national government that has the power to tax and regulate, call forth armies, and invade other countries, and cripple the power of the states. In other words, let me pause. It was all about establishing an oligarchy, a plutocracy behind color of law in order to establish a British-style here it comes, empire. The enactment of the Constitution in 1788 drastically changed the course of American history from its natural decentralized and libertarian direction to an omnipresent leviathan that fulfilled all of the anti-federalists' fears. With the ratification of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, I like to call them the Bill of Afterthoughts, because had those things been important, they would have been put in the preamble of the Constitution, wouldn't they? The new government was now a fact, and the anti-federalists would never again agitate for another constitutional convention to weaken American national power and return to a more decentralized and restrained polity. From now on, American liberals, relying on the Bill of Rights and the Tenth Amendment, would go forth and do battle for liberty and against power within the framework of the American Constitution as states' writers and constitutionalists. Their battle would be a long and gallant one, but ultimately doomed to fail, for by accepting the Constitution, the liberals would only play with dice loaded implacably against them. 
The Constitution, with its inherently broad powers and elastic clauses, would increasingly support an even larger and ever more powerful central government. In the long run, the liberals, though they could and did run a gallant race, were doomed to lose, and lose indeed they did. In a sense, the supposedly unrealistic radicals who would totally reject the Constitution and try to render it asunder in different ways and from very, very different perspectives, Exempla Gratia, the Whiskey Rebels, William Lloyd Garrison, John Brown, and the secessionists of the South, would be far more perceptive about the realities and potentials of the American constitutional system than those working within it. And that was Murray Rothbard, uh, several several years ago, in fact, uh, I believe several decades ago, writing about the Constitutional Convention and our current system of government. In other words, what he's saying is it was an oligarchy cloaking itself as a republic under color of law that was designed to create an empire and ultimately, ultimately, with so many short circuits in it that any uh, so-called populist expression of national will could be short-circuited. So in other words, what we saw yesterday is built in. It's endemic to the system. It's endemic to the system. And it's time to wake up and realize that maybe those anti-federalists had a point and that the Hamiltonians have fastened an absolute monster onto this country. Now, I want to read, as I said, a second. Uh, yeah, they are. Uh, Luis Nunez in, in the chat room just said something very in interesting I, that I totally agree with. The Austrian school of economics are great as historians as they are useless as political theorists. <laughs> I, like I said, I'm not, I'm not a libertarian. <laughs> I, I have some profound issues with that political philosophy. All right. I want to refer to a second book. We've got the libertarian perspective. Now I want to get a liberal perspective. In other words, a perspective from a classical sort of centrist left individual. His name is Morris Berman. Uh, the book was written uh, actually several decades ago, or a few decades ago. Uh, no, not a decade, about eight years, uh, eight or nine years. It came out in 2012. Uh, the man's name is Morris Berman. The book is titled Why America Failed, The Roots of Imperial Decline. And I just want to read a few snippets from this because, again, he's putting his finger on another aspect of the problem, the one that I'm calling the cultural problem. Because what, what Rothbard points out is that the Constitution is conceived in this moral vacuum without any reference to the culture, namely a European culture, that gave rise to it. It's, in fact, kind of an anti-document in a certain sense. Well, Berman is concerned with this cultural aspect um, that I think is a, this book is so chock full of 
pithy, worthy sayings and observations. I can't, in fact, I read this book maybe two or three times every three months because what he said so many years ago is even more true today. And the first observation in the book that I want to draw to your attention is a statement that he cites from Walter McDougall, who he says, McDougall believes that American history is characterized by creative corruption. And again, folks, uh, that's the Hamiltonian model that we see embodied in this Constitution. Let me point out to you that many of the founding fathers, particularly those at Philadelphia, had read an, a very interesting book by Cardinal, um, it was either Contarini or Sarpi, I forget which, which one it was, but it was a Venetian cardinal that wrote a book about the history of the most sublime republic of Venice, going into its institutions and so on. But the, the thrust of the book is to show that what Venice really was behind the facade of a republic was an oligarchy, a, a plutocratic oligarchy that was trying to create a commercial empire and did so rather successfully. And that this was a book that was influential on, on some of the founding fathers. Never forget this fact. So in other words, they moved from the swamp in Venice to the swamp in Amsterdam to essentially what becomes a moral swamp in, in the city of London, and then transfer headquarters once again to the swamp that became Washington, D.C., which is why I like to call it Swampington, D.C. So in other words, we're looking at a paradigm of polity that has been with us for about a thousand years, and all of this talk about Great Reset and so on and so forth is just more expansion of the same old, same old. Culture individuals, morality, you know, all of that stuff be damned. Berman makes the point in this book that American culture is essentially a hustling culture. It's a grift. It's all in the pursuit of economic power. And we certainly saw what that culture operates like yesterday. But I want to read an observation that he made <clears throat> citing a, uh, a Southern poet by the name of John Crow Ransom. And <clears throat> this poet, this author appeared in a collection of essays, uh, postbellum essays. And he says, and this is Berman quoting uh, John Crow Ransom, quote, The South is unique on this continent for having founded and defended a culture which was according to the European principles of culture, unquote. The Southern states, wrote the playwright Thornton Wilder, constituted, quote, enclaves or residual areas of European feeling, unquote. Europe had a maturity of mind, he said, whereas most Americans... We're in a state of arrested adolescence. And stop and think about the behavior that we saw last year. They worshipped progress. This is the key point. Even though progress never defines 
its ultimate objective. It just goes on and on, brutalizing our lives. They spoke of ambition, said Ransom, but what it really came down to was belligerence. The endless striving for personal success and success measured in financial and economic terms. Real community was not possible under these conditions, a prediction that has been proven tragically true. So in other words, the other thing I'm suggesting to you is that the adolescent behavior, the constant pursuit of progress, is also, sort of, so to speak, inbuilt into this current constitution. This is why you saw what you saw yesterday uh, with the adolescent mob of Congress doing what it did and overriding the actual will of most of the electorate in a stolen election. So um, I don't know where we go from here, quite honestly, folks. I don't know what to say. I do know that for my part, uh, I simply no longer feel like I'm a citizen of this country. I feel like I'm an exile living in a foreign land because most of the things I hold dear culturally are as far from what's in the mind of those people in the swamp as can be. Um, and it's no surprise that we should end up with a grifter in the White House who views the, the federal government as his personal fiefdom to enhance his family wealth. Because, as Rothbard points out, that's essentially what it was about. So anyway, um, I, I don't know where we go. Um, I think political action is not possible. We can entertain ourselves with hope porn about voting for constitutionally minded sheriffs and so on and so forth. But what good is that going to do when there's no rule of law and the courts themselves refuse to enforce the law? Um, so I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say or what to think. I do know that any way forward must take an honest, thorough, uh, moral search of the foundations of this culture and, more importantly, of this country and of its polity, because no progress can be made without that. So, you know, we can, we can wrap ourselves in the flag like many of those protesters that we saw on TV yesterday, and we can talk about Constitution, but we'd better realize that maybe some of that document might be the problem. And I think Rothbard brings that out probably as well as anybody uh, from the libertarian perspective that I've read. So anyway, uh, yeah, attrition through denier of, ter of, of service. Yeah, yeah. 
And that uh, Dark Truth makes a very interesting point in the chat room just now that they all had their well-planned pre-thought speeches ready. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think I think part of this is about a gun grab too. You know, good luck with that. Um so anyway, folks, the year is off to a rocky start. I have a feeling it's only going to get much, much rockier. Uh, but nonetheless, I do wish you all a happy new year to you and yours. Uh, hang in there and please uh, keep, uh, and I mean this quite sincerely, keep those of us in this alternative media field in your thoughts and prayers uh, because we will need protection and I can't count on my government to protect me. <laughs> okay. All right. That's it for the news and views this week. First one of 2021. Thank you folks for being patient during the uh, holiday intermission. And we'll see you on the flip side. Bye-bye and God bless.